0: We're in a series here at right now, this is week three, answering the question, what is Christianity? And the way that we're trying to answer it each, each week, which feels a little either nebulous or too, like, we bit off more than we can chew. Like, how in the world do you answer that? Pastor Donnie talked a little bit about that week one. But what, essentially what we're doing is we're each week we're answering that question with an answer that refers to our identity, who we are. So Pastor Donnie talked about this idea that we are a people of the book. This, this unique revelation from God that God has actually acted in history, what, what we call special revelation or specific revelation that he moved toward us. And we have this authoritative text which is, which is reliable, which is trustworthy, which is still deeply, deeply relevant even in the modern world. Last week, Pastor Bob talked about this idea that we are a people of presence, that maybe the most significant thing that happens in God's big story is that God moves into the neighborhood, that that God actually takes on flesh, what, what, what we call the incarnation. And then there are all these implications for how we live and how we do life and how we live in our neighborhoods, that it's this sort of incarnational style of engagement and interacting. And tonight what I want to talk about um, is this, this idea that we are a people of engagement. And specifically what I'm meaning by that is cultural engagement. We are people who, who engage with our culture. And I want to look at a, a particular model for that in Scripture. If you have your Bibles, would you open up to Acts chapter 17? Acts chapter 17 is an account... Uh, Luke, this is his second volume. Luke, his first volume is the gospel with his name attached to the gospel of Luke. The second volume is talking about everything that Jesus continued to do incarnationally through his people. And so we 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 get this recounting first of Peter, and he's sort of the main focus in the first part of the book of Acts. And in the second part of the book of Acts, it's this guy, Paul. And we get to Acts chapter 17, and and basically what's happened is He's going to find himself in Athens here, but the reason he's here is kind of interesting. He was actually in way, way up here uh, in Berea and a couple other places, and because of some uh, deep cultural headbanging, basically trouble was, was made for him. He had to flee for his life because of some cultural tensions. And so he gets in a boat, and he sails way, way, way down here, comes through this straight area here, and around here, and ends up in Athens. Uh, Next, he's going to head this way to Corinth. But he finds himself in Athens. And in, in Acts chapter 17, read with me in verse 13. This picks up this story. Luke tells this. this, But when the Jews of Thessalonica, that's when he was way back up north, found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea. That's where he ends up here, right here. Um, And Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him, as soon as possible, they left him. So Paul is like home alone in New York, okay? He is in Athens all by himself, unplanned trip, and he finds himself there. There's no agenda, okay? This this was not on his itinerary. And this is what we pick up and read in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogues with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, "What, what would this idol babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be proclaiming a strange deity, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is, which you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. And then Luke adds this kind of parenthetical, almost little jab. They just said, you know, this babbler, and he's kind of saying, they kind of spent their whole lives babbling. This is what they did in this people group. Now, all the Athenians... Uh, And the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new, new ideas. They were just always just kind of talking new ideas, that sort of thing. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription. To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, I will proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of men. "...to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring." Being then the children of God, we ought not think, ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And then Luke ends by saying this. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Others said, we would like to hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some joined him and believed. Among them were also Dionysius, Of the Areopagus and a woman named Demarius and others with them. Now Paul finds himself. That was a long text. Thanks. You doing okay? Sticking with me? You awake? Okay. Paul finds himself radically different culture. Culture shock. Okay. Now let's. Let's talk a little bit just generally about culture first. What, what exactly is culture? How, how does culture work? Okay, think about it like this. The Latin word for culture basically mostly relates to like uh, agriculture. It's, it's this idea. This is kind of what culture at its core means. It, it means to take stuff out of the ground, okay, like raw materials, and not to leave it alone. But, but to like reorganize it, reorder it, mess with it in order to bring more potential out, okay? So that's, that's this basic idea of culture that was used. It, it, it referred to farming and that sort of thing. And so anything that, that's kind of culture-related is this idea of I find something the way it is, but I don't leave it like that. I reorder it, I restructure it, and somehow bring more out of it than was originally there. Now in the 17th century... This word culture kind of started being applied to people. Well, let's not just leave people the way they are. Like, let's let's expose them to great art. Let's expose them to great poetry and philosophy, and, they, and then we call them what? Cultured, right? It's a cultured person. And then in the in the 19th century, the word culture really was expanded more to how we kind of tend to think about it today. It's this sort of all inclusive understanding of life. And so most sociologists would define culture as this idea of sort of the the cumulative beliefs, attitudes, customs, practices, worldview, thinking categories, everything dress of a particular group or a subgroup. Okay, so think about that. What is what is music? Well, music is a cultural artifact. It's taking the Raw material of sound, putting it together into something that's not just—it doesn't just stir the soul. In a lot of cultures, music is actually something like holds the culture together. It's like the glue of the culture, right? What's what's film as a as a cultural artifact Uh, or or movie? Well, it's taking the raw material of our human experiences and weaving them together in this like narrative that that goes somewhere. That, that that speaks of something, and so here's the point. Culture is a claim about reality. Does that make sense? Um, James uh, uh, James David, what's his name now? Hunter. I'm, I'm getting his mixed his name mixed. He's got a middle name there that I always get mixed up. James Davidson Hunter. James Davidson Hunter said, "This is what culture is." He said culture is the ability to basically uh say what reality is. It's to make a claim about this is the nature of the world. And so here's the point. Every culture that you step into, in its language, in its categories, in its art, in its music, in in every in in its uh medical Documents and in its legal documents and its medical procedures, whatever it might be, it's all based on a certain understanding of the world. And it's making a claim about this is what's true. This is what's real. This is what's important. This is what has value. This is what is beautiful. This is what you should want. So that's what a culture is. Okay. It's, it's, it's this macro massive thing that we oftentimes don't think a lot about what, you know, the culture I came from. Yeah, it's a culture defines reality. This is essentially what a culture is. And so everything is a cultural artifact. Again, from art to music to uh, legal arguments, medical, advertising. All of these things are culture. And everything is being rearranged to express some meaning. It could be human meaning, human value, whatever it might be, but it's to say how the world really is. Now, this goes back, go back to the first book of the Bible. The very first two chapters, we find two characters, and what are they commanded to do? Have dominion, right? Rule over. What are they commanded to do to the ground? Cultivate it, They're commanded to create culture. So this is a good thing. It's something that God designed. He said, I'm giving you a garden, and it's laden. There's there's latent potential in there. I want you to build a city. Now, they don't ultimately do it. The book of Revelation ends. Who is it that builds the city? Revelation 21, it says, the city descends from above, meaning God does it. We can't get there. But the intent is to do culture, to do architecture, to do design, to do beauty. And so this is, this is a, it's a divinely given task. It's something that we're hardwired to do. We can't not do it. It's just a matter of if we will do it well or not. So here's the question. What does it mean to do to think Christianly about creating culture? What does it mean to be a Christian culture maker? <laughs> right? Because we said we can't avoid it. We either do it well or we do it poorly, but we have to create culture and so, as we think about this, I wonder if I were to ask you this what What would you say if I asked you, what is the state of our current American culture right now? What kind of i mean if you were to think about that, if you were to write a couple things down, if you were to try to describe it to someone uh, i had I had a lunch with a guy who 's He's a Westerner, but he's he's serving over in uh, Phnom Penh in in the east, and he came home for a short period of time, and he was like, "So what's gone on?" in the past eight years since I've been gone, and I'm like, "It's kind of like this," and it's, you know, I'm trying to explain kind of where we're at in our cultural moment because he's been completely removed from it, aside from a headline here and there. I wonder how you would answer that if someone said, "What's the state of the culture?" Of America, where you're at right now, it'd be tough. And I would suggest, as as we think about our culture, how exactly are we going to engage with being apprentices of Jesus? Like, how do we do that? Isn't that kind of to be totally honest with you? This message kind of messed with me this week. I really struggle, not because I don't like have views and stuff, but because it just it's like it's so complex right? How do we do this? How do we engage in our culture as apprentices of Jesus in a way that's faithful to scripture and faithful to his call to love? And so how do we do that? And so um, I would suggest a lot of us feel tension. I don't know how many of you would say, I kind of feel a little bit of tension. Maybe, maybe living in a culture where, man, my, what I would describe as my culture, it's not always represented. Maybe living with people, who, who are from a different, I don't mean an ethnic culture, but a different culture in this sense, meaning a description of what's real and true and important and has meaning and reality. <clears throat> let me let me read for you. How many of you know who Eugene Peterson is? If you've ever read the message paraphrase of the Bible, this is the guy who did that. He's this passionate lover of Jesus, brilliant scholar in the original languages, and, and so he did this message paraphrase of the Bible. Um, Eugene Peterson wrote a book called The Pastor a couple years ago. It's sort of his, uh, what do you call that? Not life story. Your um, Memoirs, yeah, yeah, kind of his memoirs. And he tells this great story about when he was a kid, okay, thinking about the tensions of being a follower of Jesus and living in cultures that don't always fit in. Listen, listen to this story. I had been prepared for the wider world of neighborhood and school by memorizing, bless those who persecute you, and turn the other cheek. I don't know how Garrison Johns knew that about me. Some sixth sense bullies have, I suppose. Most afternoons after school, he would catch me and beat me up. He also found out I was a Christian and taunted me with Jesus sissy. I arrived home most days bruised and humiliated. My mother told me this had always been the way of Christians in the world and that I had better get used to it. She also said that I was supposed to pray for him. One day I was with seven or eight friends when Garrison caught up with us in the afternoon and started jabbing me. That's when it happened. Something snapped. For a moment, the Bible verses disappeared from my consciousness and I grabbed Garrison. To my surprise and his, I was stronger than he was. I wrestled him to the ground, sat on his chest, pinned his arms to the ground with my knees, and he was helpless at at my mercy. It was too good to be true. I hit him in the face with my fist. It felt good, and I hit him again. Blood spurted from his nose, a lovely crimson in the snow. I said to Garrison, say, uncle. He wouldn't say it. I hit him again. More blood. Then my Christian training reasserted itself. I said, say, I believe in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. (laughs) He wouldn't say it. I hit him again. More blood. I tried again. Say, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And he said it. Garrison Johns was my first Christian convert. (laughs) That's the guy who translated the paraphrase of the of the bible see well i would suggest that many of our cultural engagements don't end with blood spurts of crimson uh on on the snow necessarily that oftentimes we leave kind of an emotional wake uh of, of hurt of offense behind us when when we're too triumphalistic or We 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 end up um, out of fear and intimidation. We recoil and we don't engage at all, and we don't speak any truth, capital T truth, even when the time presents itself. And so it's it's this tension, right? Of how do I engage appropriately and not go to over triumphalistic triumph? triumph I can't say it over triumphalistic. Or this sort of recoiling, this um, placating, this, this, this uh, assimilating is maybe the best way to put it. How, how, how do I not go into one of those two directions? And so tonight I want to look at an example, this, this passage we just read, of, of Paul who does an engagement, I think, re- I think he gets a third way in there. He doesn't go this way and he doesn't go that way. I think, I think he does this third way, this Jesus way. And here's what I need to say up front. These aren't rules. There's no three steps for this. I wish there were. I was kind of wanting this week, like, what are the three steps? I just want to find out what the three steps are. And there aren't any. You know, there's lots of examples in scriptures of different ways of doing it. And this is one way. But I think some principles emerge ...out of it as we look at it. So can we just do that tonight? Can we just kind of make some observations here about this, this text? And again, I don't think it's a science. I think it's more of an art. I think that's what Paul shows us here. So let's go through the text here. If you have your Bibles, take a look at verse 14. We read this. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul to go as far as the sea... Uh, ...down to verse 15. It says, uh, now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens... ...and they left... And Paul in Athens, verse 16 says, Paul was waiting for them in Athens. You know, the first observation, we kind of pointed this out earlier, is I would suggest that much of what goes on in God utilizing, cultural engaging, Jesus-centered conversations do not come as a result of our preparation and of, of our itinerary. Right? Paul finds himself here from his perspective accidentally. It was not, it was not intended and yet god radically uses this situation in his life i think that's why you know the bible tells us to be prepared in season and out or as first peter 3:15 says always be prepared to give an answer for this hope that you have inside you doing it with gentleness and with, with respect. Why? Because God utilizes every single moment, even unplanned moments in our life. Now, a word real quickly about, about Athens. As you think about that, I've got a couple images up here if you can see any of these. Um, Athens, it's, it's both the classical civilization and, and the, the, the traditional religion. Now Athens was somewhat in decline by this point in terms of its power and significance in the world. It was still kind of the intellectually elite kind of cultural driver in that way, but Rome had come in. It had set up its own. In fact, in the in the shade of of the great uh, this great worship center at the very top was was also a worship center for for Rome and and for Caesar. So there was. You know, they're not completely in control at this point, but um, it's, this, it's this gorgeous area. This last one here you can see. This, this is the Acropolis. This is kind of from a side perspective here. Um, this is looking down on it. It had these two huge, massive amphitheaters. This was the Theater of Dionysius over here, and you see the temple uh, up top, and you would have to enter through this side over here. The St. Paul would have had to go up there, and it is entering this massive, massive area. Um, this is the forum. This would have been the marketplace. We'll talk in a second about what the marketplace was in particular. Um, this is, this was the temple to Zeus. Now this is just one cluster of temples, but if you can see how big, this is a person right here. So if you can see how massive these things are, you take a tour of this and you just feel absolutely dwarfed by the size, by the majesty. And this is just one tiny cluster that is, that is left from what was there before. Uh, this is another temple that was up there. This was the walkway that any person would have had to go to to get up to that great temple area. It was this fantastic, beautiful cultural center of the world. Um, this right here is the Areopagus. Uh, it's this uh, outcropping of rocks, kind of slanted, that it got its name... Or the people who actually were sort of the keepers of the city. They, they, they sort of kept guard on uh, ideas going on. The Areopagus is the ruling authorities of the city-state of Athens. Their Areopagus, a couple centuries before, is the same group that brought Socrates up on this hill and forced him to drink hemlock because of his ideas. They were the guardians of ideas. They don't have quite the same power and authority in this day, But Luke's almost setting the story up to be like Paul is sort of playing this role, kind of like Socrates. He's standing there all by himself, addressing the Areopagus, and they're saying, we'd like to know about these ideas you have. So there's some intimidation going on there, even in this picture right here. Um, We see here that uh, these, these temples... Uh, when, when Paul says that he was deeply distressed because of the number of temples, uh, we read in history that um, many ancient writers would say that there were actually more more idols in Athens than there were men. And so the, the religious uh, system was palpable. It, it, it was, there was everything from superstition to great high philosophy in this one place and one town here. So, now, where in Athens did Paul go is the next question that I want us to look at. And this might be obvious, but I think it's still instructive for us. Where did it say he went when he got to Athens? Two different areas. First, he did what he always went to a town. He went into the synagogue. Paul's Jewish. He goes into the Jewish synagogue, and it says that he reasoned with his fellow Jews and with the God-fearing Greeks. God-fearing Greeks are basically converts to judaism who have done everything except circumcision so they kind of stay on the outside but 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 they're they're believers in the old testament hebrew bible and his, and so he goes in there to the synagogues and it says he reasoned with them from the scriptures but then it says he also went into the marketplace let me go back to that um image of the marketplace now the marketplace was not just where you would go buy food. That's what we kind of think of it as, or, you know, maybe some clothes or that sort of thing. This is a world where there's no Internet and there's no TV. So where do you get your news? Well, you get it by going to the marketplace. That's where you're told information. There, there are no phones. There's no email. So how do you discuss ideas? Well, you discuss ideas in the marketplace. There's, there's no DVD players. So you watch plays, you watch these these great stories in the amphitheaters of Athens. There's no stock exchange, so this is where you go to do investments, business transactions. This is where the artists' beautiful art galleries are. This is where the city rulers are. Here's the point. This is where all of life is. It's the center of life. And here's, I think, a big observation for us is that Paul did not believe that his Christian faith, oh, it's just something personal. It gives me inner peace and it makes me feel good, but I'll just kind of keep it to myself and I'll, you know, it's a personal. No, he didn't think it was a personal private thing only. He thought there were implications. He understood his role as a Christian culture shaper. He went to the very center place of the world in this area. And this is where he, Engaged, and here's kind of an application question for us: Is your faith every part of your life? Does your faith uh, impact the way that you watch films? Does your faith impact the way that you go to work? Does your faith impact the way that uh, you participate and are enriched by art? Does your faith? Does your faith impact every aspect of your life, or is it is it kind of like well it's over in this corner or it's here? But it's not, here's the key word, integrated. Your faith isn't all of your life. Take a look in verse, uh, verse 22. What, what was Paul's attitude? How did, how did he approach this? Uh, verse 22, we said this. This is when he stands up in the midst of the Areopagus, the ruling uh, people of the city, state of Athens. He says, uh, it says, so Paul stood up in the midst of the Areopagus, and he says, you dirty pagans. It's really interesting what he says here. He uses a very respectful phrase. He says, Men of Athens. That was a phrase that was used by many Greek writers as a way of giving honor and dignity. And that's how he starts his communication. Men of Athens. And then look what he says here. Uh, I, I see that in many ways you are religious, or that you are religious in all respects. Deeply respectful in this way. Uh, the, the, the famous Athenian dramatist Sophocles wrote that Athens, of all the different city-states of Greece, he said, was the most religiously devout. So Athens was known for this. Paul is aware of the role they play, and he says, you are the most religiously devout community, culture, culture. And I can see that in so many ways. It goes on in verse 23. He says, For as I was passing through and examining the objects of worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. And then he says, Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, I will proclaim to you. Now, the... uh, if you read Bible scholars on this, they will say this, this inscription thing, like, to an unknown God. They say there's two different possible meanings for why they had written this. One is they were hedging their bets, right? Like, we've got literally thousands of gods covered here, but what if we missed one? You know, like, that one might get ticked and might, it might do something. So it's kind of hedging their bets of kind of like, well, you know, we're covering all our bases sort of thing. That's, that's a possible one. Another possibility is this idea that within, within Greek thinking, going far, far back, there was this idea, because there were many gods, but there was the idea that there was one ultimate, high, removed, untouchable, unknowable, completely transcendent being that we don't know anything about. Is he even personal? or We, we just don't know. And all the other gods are like light emanating from the sun, but you can't actually get to the sun. And so we make this altar, we don't know this God's name, we don't know his intentions, we don't even know if he's personal, we don't know anything, but there's this higher, removed, ultimate, back behind the screen, God. And so that's what we're making it for. And whichever one they had in mind, what's really interesting is that that Paul states, or he starts with what these people already think is true. He's starting with some kind of, like, assumed knowledge. What's that assumed knowledge? We don't know about this God. He uses the word ignorance, which is key. It's really, really key here for a couple different reasons. Ignorance was something, remember the two groups? There's Epicureans and what was the other group? Stoics, okay? And they're kind of different in their in their philosophy and their thinking. It, it, like, to put it crudely um, and oversimplifying, this... The Stoics are basically kind of New Age pantheists. They kind of think God's in everything and everything's in God, and you know the, the one soul sort of thing. Um, and then and then the Epicureans were sort of kind of like Western materialists. Yeah, if they're gods, they're removed, and they, you know sort of like a deist. God's not involved, you know sort of thing. And so uh, we just live our life. Pleasure is a high value, but a controlled means of that sort of thing. And and so they kind of represent these two different views here. But what's really interesting is that ignorance, and I think Paul knew this, most commentators think that he did, ignorance was, Paul was tapping on a deeply held cultural value. Remember we said your culture explains what's real, how the world is, what's true and important and all that stuff. Ignorance represented the original state, according to Stoics, that humanity was in before we sort of left this oneness with the impersonal force of God. And So they talked a lot about ignorance. Ignorance is this bad state we're in and we need to get back to this oneness with God, kind of this sort of new age idea. And if we would just do that, we would have enlightenment. I'm, that's not their word, but that's sort of our word, putting it back on there. And so Paul cues into that. You're worshiping some ignorance. I can help you reach enlightenment." And they're like, "We're interested. That sounds good. And so his strategy here, and, and again, we'll come back to this, but just, uh, just let me say this, because this is kind of where I want to I come back to and end on this tonight, because I think it's really key, is that Paul is, is picking up on deep cultural desires. Deep, deep, deep cultural desires. And he's embedding, that are, that are embedded in their own story, and he's saying, you'll never get to those desires apart from something that I have to tell you. And that's kind of the rest of the story. He says, those things you really, really want, those things you're really longing for, those things that you're pursuing in here and there, the things underneath the things, there's only one way to get them, and I know what that is. That's, that's kind of what he's getting to. So we'll come back to that in a second. So look at his strategy here. <clears throat> strategy, when he, when he speaks with the, the Jews in the synagogue, what does he use as his jumping off point? See, He, he said he reasoned with them from the... Scriptures, right? And why would he do that? Well, why wouldn't he? Right? These are Jews. Of course, they accept the Old Testament scriptures. He's using what they already think is true. He's finding common ground with them. But what does he do when he gets to the Athenians? Does does he start quoting from Isaiah or the books of Moses? He doesn't even mention a passage of scripture when he's. Why doesn't he do that? Why doesn't he mention? He, is he kind of like uh, nervous? No, are you kidding me? Is he, is he sort of embarrassed of the gospel? Are you kidding me? I mean, Paul is the least one who's ashamed of the gospel. You go back or uh, forward just a couple of chapters, chapter 28, and we read this a totally different place where Paul's at. And we read that they arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God. How did he do that? Well, these are Jews, so here's how we did it. From the law of Moses and from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made his final statement. And he said, the Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through the prophet Isaiah, and he quotes Isaiah a whole bunch, okay? Paul's not ashamed, so why doesn't he use Scripture when he's engaging with these Stoic and Epicurean Greek philosophical thinkers. See, I would suggest that the reason he does it is, is because he's starting with what they already believe to be true. It wouldn't, it wouldn't carry any weight if he started quoting Hebrew scripture. Uh, ben Witherington is a, is a New Testament scholar. Uh, he, he puts it this way. He says, arguments are only persuasive if they work within the plausibility structure existing in the minds of the hearers. What he's saying is this. Your argument, is only, it will not penetrate the person's mind and heart unless they even have a category for what you're talking about. It's not even plausible. There's no, there's no plausibility structure. If you say, let me tell you about something, and they don't even have a category for it, they're just going to be like, okay, I don't even know what you're talking about. (laughs) And so he's using their their structures, their categories as he talks to them. So rather than being a Bible thumper, rather than doing what our our good friend Eugene Peter did to uh, uh, Mr. John's punching him in the face, Paul actually, he sort of takes on their categories. He assumes some of the things that they're thinking, and he affirms where he can, Things that, that they have already. There are certain understandings of the world. He's, he's affirming their culture where it's appropriate. And he's saying, you have some insight there. You have some deep insight into that. But let me explain why that is. I agree with that. I think that too. Here's why I think it. And then it's sort of a comparison of which, which one has a better explanation of the cumulative facts and details that we're wrestling with in our experiences here. And so he kind of plays according to their rules, as of, of the community's rules, of the culture, as he's trying to reach them. Now, if, if we were able to more closely go through this, we don't have time tonight, but if, if we went through this message, uh, this oratory thing here that Paul gave, you would see that he's actually, a lot of scholars point this out, he's actually following a certain structure that was common uh, among the Stoics, meaning how they approached. Let me just give you this little statement right here. Um, Cicero was a Roman academic, and Cicero kind of uh, paraphrased for us what it is that, that the Stoics believed. And here's what he said. This was his take. He said, first, the Stoics, they prove that God exists, then they explain their nature, I'm sorry, that the gods exist, then they explain their nature, then they show that the world is governed by them, lastly, that they care for the fortunes of mankind. That's almost the exact structure that Paul takes here. Paul's using the categories, the thought pattern, the way, the culture, in which these pantheistic, pagan, Greek Athenian philosophers thought, and here's what's interesting. Remember, we said this was not on Paul's itinerary. How do you suppose Paul did this if he wasn't like he didn't? I mean, he didn't have his he didn't have his sermon notes. How did he do it? Because he was a student of culture. He knew he quotes their their philosophers, which are poets as back then it's the same. He quotes like their music of the day. It would it would be like someone you know. Me sitting down with someone and being like, oh, oh yeah. I, I quote a song and they're like, oh, you know that? He's deeply involved in the cultural artifacts of different groups. And we know that because this is not a prepared situation, but he's deeply aware of this, of this world. Paul uses their language, their cultural categories, affirms when he can, when he can um, but he's also confronting He's also confronting pieces of the culture. Um, See, this is always going to be the case, I would suggest. If you move out into any part of your culture, your world, with the gospel, with the person of Jesus, it will both confront and it will affirm places in our culture. And so we, we have to invite and attract people through their culture's Uh, deepest aspirations and that's what i talked about a little bit earlier this idea of finding out what is it that a culture really really wants see this is this is what uh, paul's doing athens we said it's a blend of superstitious idolatry highbrow enlightened philosophy and all that Um, paul uses the insights of these brilliant philosophers to support the christian faith Um, paul agrees with the epicureans that we should be critical of superstition, that it's irrational to think that gods live in like physical things. Paul agrees with the Stoics in their emphasis on the unity of mankind, that there's a kinship between us and God. But he disagrees with the Epicureans because they, they didn't think it was necessary to seek God to, to grope after him. They didn't think there would be any sort of uh, justice at the end of the day. And yet Paul says, no, God will bring justice at the end of time. He disagreed with the Stoics because their concept of God was pantheistic. All is God and God is all. And he said, no, God is separate from the creation. He's he's, he's transcendent. He's close. He's imminent. You're right on that piece. But he's transcendent. He's not to be confused with his world. Now, here's what I would suggest is that Paul's strategy was initially... To initially take the side of his hearers, the philosophers, but then demonstrate to them that they didn't go far enough. Now who does that sound like? Who, who, who kind of did that a lot? You know, Jesus, as a part of his Jewish world, that was a part of his world, he used all of these rich images from the Old Testament prophets. When, when he wanted to talk about the people, the nation, he said... Let me tell you a story about a vineyard. The prophets talked about God planting a vineyard, and that's, that, that was kind of their deal. So he, he constantly used these things, but then he used them for his own truth claim about the world. God's actually going to take the vineyard away from those who are taking care of it. Jesus told stories where it made people think he was going in a certain direction, and at the end he pulled the rug out from underneath their feet. Remember the story of the elder son and the younger son? Jesus is sitting around in a crowd, and he's got some people who are real self-righteous. And the people on the other side of the crowd, they're sort of, you know, the black sheep. And Jesus goes, hey, let me tell you a story about two two brothers, and one is just worthless. He tells the dead, you know, forget you, and goes off to a far land. And then this other boy, he's just, he's stayed there the whole time. He's worked his tail off. Now, he's allowing those people to identify, oh, yeah, that's me. I'm that guy. I'm the guy who stayed the whole time. And then he gets to the end of the story and he pulls the rug out from underneath the feet and he goes, yeah, both boys never knew the dad and they just were using him for his stuff. <laughs> See, Jesus told subversive stories. I would suggest what Paul is doing here is what he learned from his master. He's telling a subversive story. It's their story, but he's capturing it for the Christian worldview. He's going to be that cultural change agent. And so as a, as a point of application, Paul did this exact same thing. And so I think the question is what are, and I want to give you just like six words. I wish we had more time to explore this, but we're short on time. So we can't, we said earlier, every culture has certain, uh, underlying values that I would suggest are the true issues when it comes to cultures, um, you know, conflating, but uh, if, if you have conversations around these issues, this is where it's dynamic. This is where it can be meaningful. So let me give you six, um, what I'll call, just, these are sort of human you know, givens of the world. Okay? These things are kind of built into, I would suggest, our culture, that every single person thinks is important. It's a human given. But the question is, can their culture explain it? Can their worldview explain these things? Because Paul did this, Jesus did this. And so I think this is maybe where we go. So I'm not going to give you exactly, you know, this is how to have the conversation because we said, remember, this is more of an art than a science. But these are the issues around which to have the kingdom conversations that end up being culture-shaping. And the first one is meaning. Uh, By that I mean having a purpose having a significance to have meaning is to have an overall reason for being here um, and to have kind of something beyond this immediate moment and myself that I am leaning toward. Um, and I would suggest that this psychological... Lean- and see, all of these things, as you have conversations with people around these cultural I- issues, you can, you can give examples from culture and say, well, sure, meaning is extremely important. Um, this is, again, I think it's, uh, inarguable. There's a, there's a physician and, uh, a professor and an author. His name is, uh, if I can pronounce it correctly, Atul Gawande. And, uh, he's, uh, he's a medical doctor. He's a surgeon. And he, he tells of a doctor working at a nursing home who, who persuaded, um, the people running the administrator to bring in dogs, cats, parakeets uh like a colony of rabbits <laughs> and and even a group of laying hens uh to be cared for by the residents and what he found out why it was what 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 was so significant about it are the results of doing this and this is what he said I'll just read it for you he said the results began to I'm sorry the residents began to wake up and come to life people who we had believed weren't able to speak started speaking people who had been completely withdrawn non-ambulatory started coming to nurses stations and saying i'll take the dog for a walk all the parakeets were adopted and named by the residents the use and need for uh drugs for agitation dropped significantly to 38 percent of the previous level and deaths fell 15 percent simply as a result of doing this why well, this is the conclusion of the architect of this. He wrote, I believe that the difference in death rates can be traced to the fundamental human need for a reason to live. And then Gwandi goes on to say, why simply existing, why being merely housed and fed and safe and alive seems empty and meaningless to us? What more is it that we need in order to feel that life is worthwhile? He says, the answer is that we all seek a cause beyond ourselves. I think we all know that. We're aware of that. We need something to live. See, now, our Western secular culture would say, just just don't think so deeply about that issue, why you live. Just enjoy the moment. I mean, that's typically the answer. If, it, if it's not meaningless, oh, you know, you just give up and it's there's no meaning. Ah, just don't think about it. Enjoy the moment and that's all. See, the Christian answer is very different. The Christian answer says, you're not thinking deeply enough about, this, what, uh, about what this means. See, when I am feeling downcast, when I am starting to feel I don't have meaning, it's because I'm not thinking deeply enough about the implications of what it is that I believe. Listen, listen to this. This comes from Timothy Keller. He says, this is, this is what Christians believe. Center their lives and put the flag of their lives in christians believe that there was a god who made us in love to know him But that as a human race we turned away And were lost to him. However, he has promised to bring us back to himself God has sent his son into the world to break the power of sin and death at infinite cost himself by going to the cross Christian teaching is that jesus rose from the dead and passed through heavens and is now ruling history and preparing a future new heaven and new earth without death and suffering in which we will live with him forever. And then all the deepest longings of our hearts will find their fulfillment. See, that's what the Christian says, that's what we plant our life in. That's how we have meaning. So the first one is meaning. The second one, and I'm not going to go as much on each one of those here, um, satisfaction. This is simply the idea that we want something that nothing in this life Scratches the itch for <laughs> The best job The best relationship The best vacation The best whatever you do There's always going to be something missing There's something beyond Something other That nothing gets at And so the point is either That you will, you will be so s- driven And self-hating Because either you fail to achieve it Or you're resentful Because you can't access it in any way Or you do like the ancient Greeks and you just say, well, I just need to give up on desiring altogether. Or there's a different way, the the Jesus way. Satisfaction, another, a third cultural one is freedom. Uh, Freedom, it's not just the lack of restraint. uh, It's more liberty to pursue what it is that makes me flourish as a human being and the question is which narrative can explain the nuances of this not just what it means to be free but have you ever noticed there's something inside you that's that's sort of um uh a slavery thing (laughs) self-delusion what explains that idea of this inner heart slavery as well uh a fourth one is identity who am i um what determines my identity? Do I look for it just inside myself? Is the point of uh, having an identity as being sort of a self-made man? Can I rely on anyone else to help me? What what validates me? What what, what gives me validation? Fifth one is hope. Uh, Is my hope simply in human progress? Do I really think that the human, that, that we can kind of perfect human nature and that's what will kind of fix everything? That's what I can put my, my hope in? Uh, do all of my loves and hopes simply come crashing down at the end of my life and when I'm worm food and at the end of the universe when this universe dies of a heat loss? Or is there someone that has actually conquered death and if I'm found in him allows me to Go beyond that. How do I explain hope? And the last one is justice. Which narrative, which culture, and again, these are ethnic cultures we're talking about in in this broad sense, which understanding of the world best explains things like uh, universal human rights? Um, This idea that... um, it's not just feelings, but you actually have a moral obligation to love others around you. Uh, why, is it okay for the, why is it not okay, or is it okay for the strong to eat the weak in our society? What would make us think we have an obligation to love and care for one another? These are the big questions around which, like Paul, like Jesus, I think we can engage in meaningful conversation and talk about which... Which theory of the world, which narrative best accounts for, explains these things that we're all longing for? They're sort of the water running underneath, like we all want them. They're all a part of us there. How do we do this? And the answer, I think, of how we do that, because I don't know about you, but I don't do this very well. I mean, lots of times I, I, I don't do this well at all. It creates more heat than light, or I'm too afraid, and I back up on that sort of thing. How do I do this? And I think the answer is kind of hidden at the end of what we're told about here in the story of Acts 17. Look in verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked times of ignorance, this is Paul talking to them. He's saying, there has been this tendency to turn everything on its head, to worship creation rather than the creator. And he said, therefore, God has overlooked the times of ignorance. Humanity basically trying to be its own savior. But God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Who, who, who's the man Paul's talking about here? He actually doesn't name him to the philosophers, at least in this particular passage. He almost leaves it vague, leaves them asking this question. Who, which, which, what man is this? What what possible man could be that? Who is the man through whom God is going to judge the world in righteousness? Through what man did God give solid evidence of this truth by raising him from the, see, the only reason that Paul, I would suggest, remember at the beginning what it says about him, it says he was deeply distressed. He was bugged. I mean, deeply on edge. Why? By seeing the idolatry. How how can he both be deeply disturbed in his spirit by, by this you know pagan idolatry and yet respectful, loving, non-judgmental. Do you see how those two all, they don't go together a lot, do they? <laughs> I mean he's deeply bothered, he's impassioned by this. And he's and he's also compassionate toward them. He moves toward them with respect. He cares about them. And I would suggest that it's because he serves a man who died for his enemies. And his last breaths were for his enemies. He died for them. See, it's, it's only in Jesus that, that we can... Let me, let me read some words to you from one author because he kind of combines. See, no, n- no one like Jesus is like this picture here. That Jesus combines high majesty with the greatest humility. He joins the strongest commitment to justice and yet has astonishing mercy and grace. He reveals a transcendent self-sufficiency in himself and yet an entire trust and reliance upon the heavenly father. We see in Jesus tenderness, but never weakness. We see boldness, but without harshness. We see humility but never uncertainty. And see, only in Jesus do we find unbending convictions, right? Strong, unmovable convictions, and yet complete approachability. His insistence on truth, but always bathed in love. His power without insensitivity. Integrity without rigidity and passion without prejudice see only only if you and i see that the real jesus only if i see the real jesus and and make him my center can i begin to be empowered to move into this kind of kingdom transformation culture change that i'm called to and 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 i don't i don't become this person who's triumphalistic angry mean upset fearful about the direction of the culture and i'm not someone who is completely recoiling unwilling to engage and interact fearful i could be wrong and so i just assimilate jesus provides a third way but it's only i think by putting him at the center